I was literally just thinking to myself, I cannot wait to hit record and finally say, ah, oh, I'm enjoying Jill's, this technology's not working face again. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everybody, welcome to Scattered. Um, we're looking at uh, Acts 21 this week. Um, we Paul has just been spending time with the Ephesian elders um, for the last time um, and we see him leaving them here and tearing himself away to head on to Jerusalem. Um, we've already seen that in chapter 19 and 20 he's mentioned that he's pretty sure he wants to head to Jerusalem. Um, he feels compelled by the Spirit, knowing that he'll face hardships and prison so guys let's talk about this Paul seems to have a bit of a be on a bit of a death mission here doesn't he um why do you think he's so keen to go to Jerusalem um and who's trying to stop him in this passage well uh he has mentioned several times uh throughout um previous chapters hasn't he that uh he's constrained by the spirit uh I think that uh, he seems pretty set on going, doesn't he? I think he's probably feeling a real conviction uh, from the Holy Spirit. And I think the danger is, I think we just think that's a, a, a super spiritual thing that went on for Paul. But I think we also can piece together, can't we? There's, there's really practical reasons too, why he thinks it's important for the church that he goes. And I think one of those is he's been collecting these gifts that we've talked about financially from the Gentile churches and he's really keen, isn't he, to take those to Jerusalem to show that unity and to try and, I think you see in all the way through this chapter, his heart is for unity between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And I think he feels it really important that he can take these gifts to build that unity and to try and ensure that the church doesn't split right at the beginning into two mm. separate sections of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So, yeah, I agree that I think he's had a spiritual, the Holy Spirit has compelled his spirit. But I think there's also there's good reasons alongside that of rational, thoughtful. I think it'd be good, really helpful for me to go there and build that unity. Yeah. And those those, those um, gifts that he's bringing to the Jewish church, you know, culturally, that would have been a huge deal, wouldn't it? Like the Gentiles and Jews would never really have thought about helping each other out before. Uh, and so for these Jews who are still having, you know, as we see later, they're still having these wrestles about, can we be Jews? Are we Gentiles? Because that's really offensive to us. Like we're really, they're still wrestling with these things. And so for Paul to come with a gift for, from the Gentiles for a struggling Jewish church would have been gargantuous for, for church unity. And it's, there's echoes, isn't there, throughout this passage in his kind of determination to re return to Jerusalem, there's echoes of Jesus, aren't there? And I, I bet he kind of felt that kind of walking alongside Jesus and Jesus's kind of desire to go to Jerusalem. Like Jesus said several times, this is going to, I'm going to be uh, suffer and be put to death um, and rise again in, in Jerusalem. And I, I, I bet Paul really identified with Jesus in that as he headed to Jerusalem, knowing that bad things were, were awaiting him there. But do you, who's trying to stop him so he stops several places on the way to Jerusalem doesn't he um who's I guess not trying to stop him but what happens that you know it's quite striking in this bit it feels a bit like everybody he meets thinks it's a bad idea um for him to go there 
Um, so yeah, in that first little section, we see in verse four that through the Spirit, um, these guys in Tyre were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Um, and then again, when they stay in Caesarea, in Philip's house, um, Philip's daughters um, prophesy, and then this guy Agabus comes and really lays it out very visually how um, it's not going to go well in Jerusalem and he's going to be bound and, um, yeah, be handed over to the authorities. So as we kind of see these people pleading with Paul, um, and we've saw it in the last chapter as well, like, do you think that, what do you think Paul's theology of risk is? Like, what is a theology of risk and what can we learn from his theology of risk? I would start by saying Uh, I think that a theology of risk is very tightly bound and almost inseparable from a theology of suffering. Um, So Helen, do you mean that unless we have a robust understanding that we, just like Jesus suffered, and I guess like Mary was saying, Paul identified with Jesus' suffering as he's heading into Jerusalem, we as his followers may well be called to suffer. And so we're prepared to take risk because we part of our theology of the Christian life is that suffering's part of the deal. Yeah, definitely. And I think Paul has said, we've looked at it before in Acts, haven't we, where Paul says, we're going to suffer, not uh, so that we go to heaven, but because we're going to heaven, we should, ex- we should expect suffering. Um, not that we, sh- not that we should embrace it every time it comes and therefore be willing to take every risk. I think we still need to discern, don't we? You know, Paul here um, in Acts, when there was that riot of Ephesus going on, he didn't take the risk and run into the crowd. He listened to his friends there um, because Paul has this developed sense of wisdom and discernment. What would be best for the gospel? That I think ultimately as Christians, we need to decide. We are going to suffer. We are going to have to risk for the gospel. What in each situation would help the gospel spread? What's going to help this person that I'm interacting with come to know Jesus? What would help uh, Jesus's name be glorified? And sometimes I think that requires us to put ourselves in difficult and dangerous situations. Sometimes it doesn't. I think in this country, we are less likely to be put into a dangerous situation, although I do think that's changing. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Do do you think it's fair to say that a theology of risk is like a framework that helps us think through when it's appropriate to take a risk? Um, I don't know what you think about that. Like um, I was talking to Dave about it last night and he said um, risk becomes more worthy depending on the cause. Okay, so we're not talking about uh, bungee jumping or, you know, so that so the, the cause of, of bungee jumping is, you know, for fun and it's enjoyable and it's and it's exciting. Uh, but then if you're talking about, for example, move, taking your family, your young family to another country where that's deemed less safe uh, for the sake of saving souls um, through God's mercy, like those are two completely different things, aren't they? Um, <laughs> so thinking through what is the cause uh for your risk and um and when when is it appropriate to take that risk or not I don't know what you think about that yeah I think that's really helpful Mary and I guess you guys have both done that um example of taking young families to a more risky part of the world 
what how did you develop that that sort of strategy and how did you think that through personally uh it it was really it's really hard because you I think one of the things that really helped me in that was um because I think like Helen said living um in a country like the UK you do have kind of a sense of entitlement to not live a risky life like we our culture is very much geared towards safety um so therefore to step outside of that um and go towards the risky thing it was it's really hard and you have relatives and friends and you know church members who will approach you and say this is a bad idea um or stronger than that um and so you really have to chew through these things um when you're heading out to the mission field um one of the big things for me was thinking through the fact that I didn't choose to be born in a country like the UK so if i'm not prepared to go and love people elsewhere who are born into more difficult situations then i'm saying that my life um and the life of my family is more important um and more valuable than the people who who need need jesus and need you know that what i can do in their lives and what he can do through me in their lives that was something that i really had to um weigh up um what about you helen yeah very very similar I think also it's helpful to realize that often when we think about risk, including when we're working with organizations that do work abroad, um, we often use a secular risk assessment for a, when we're not operating in a secular framework. And so, um, you know, you, like you said, you do need to keep that, uh, why are we doing this in the center? Because if you decide that the risks are so great that you're not interacting with your local community, um, if you're not willing to do that, then why are you going? Um, yeah, is I would ask I would ask that question. Um, having seen people who I think have struggled significantly with the concept of risk on the field, it's also I've noticed it's also relative. So for some people, just being in Africa is the risk, and so they get to Africa and they and they can't move beyond that that's the risk and the um and therefore suffering because of that risk they've done that risk and therefore the suffering because of that risk is to be avoided at all costs whatever that suffering may look like I'm not talking about necessarily being shot at but you know not being able to get for some people it's not being able to get certain food or whatever um yeah and so we I really think before I mean, we're talking specifically about going onto the field here. I think certainly within my organization anyway, I think there could be a huge more amount done to help people think it through, not necessarily teach it, but help people think through their theology of risk and their theology of suffering. I think by this point in Acts, Paul has a pretty solid theology of suffering. He see, you know, he knows what Jesus went through. He's been told right back in Acts 9, Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus says, I'm going to tell him how he's going to suffer for my name. He's known since his conversion that he's going to suffer for Jesus. And yet he still thinks the risk is worth it. And that's what I think that's when we're talking about theology of risk and suffering. That's where the rubber hits the road. Do you really believe this and do you really think it's worth it? And I, yeah, that's really helpful, Helen. When I was reading these passages and wrestling through why Paul didn't do what he was advised to do even prophesied over him um 
I heard a really helpful preach that talked about people often are making um, decisions and giving advice because of horizontal relationships. And you see that really clearly here, don't you? They really loved Paul and they really, everything in them is trying to protect him from suffering on a, on a sort of horizontal, we love you, you're our friend, you're really valuable to the gospel. Like we don't want to see you suffer and ultimately die. Whereas I think Paul's motivation is more vertical and he's constantly thinking, what is at stake here and is it worth it and is this going to benefit the gospel and what does God want and what's going to be most profitable for his kingdom and I just found that super challenging thinking about um, not that those horizontal things are unimportant because they are important aren't they but actually what's our primary motivation and I think that explains why Paul goes because he thinks that's God's will. And in the passage as well, there's no indication, is there, that they are wrong for telling him not to go. Um, I'm pretty convinced as well that there's no indication that Paul is wrong for continuing to Jerusalem. It's You want people to be able to speak into your life, don't you? You want people to be able to say, are you sure about this? We're worried about you. And it may be that you can sit down and discuss together actually I really hear you you know I'm sure Mary has had these discussions I've definitely had these discussions I'm sure I will have these discussions considering I'm going where I'm going to um you know I hear you I really appreciate your input but I really feel like this is the Lord pushing me in this direction will you pray for me and with me in that and this kind of risk taking actually it, it applies to everyday life, like wherever you are, like in the UK or elsewhere. Um, there's risks, you know, relationally that sometimes we're called to, you know, are we going to say something hard to someone or, you know, financially, are we going to, you know, give away this amount of money to this person and put ourselves in a difficult financial situation, but for the gospel, like the, there's risk kind of involved um, in everyday steps. But I think risk, um, like Helen said, like it drives you towards like, what are we doing this for? What are we here for? Um, I think it's a really it should be a really healthy part of um, the Christian life and like God you know God doesn't take risks does he like risk involves an unknown um, matter doesn't it and God's not ignorant of anything um, so essentially we can we can trust him with our with our risks um, uh, you know taking big risks isn't outside of what he can control um, which is a comfort I think so as uh, Paul travels kind of through all of these countries and people are trying to kind of uh, give him advice about what to do next what struck you about this part of the passage he goes several places doesn't he I guess how much he was loved and how much people cared for him practically on that journey um, yeah I just loved the fact that he went from house to house and there was that feeling of we stayed not a few days with them because they were really um, encouraging each other and there was a mutual sense in which Paul was being built up and encouraged and I was really struck in verse 13 where you know he does listen doesn't he to their advice and he does weigh what they say heavily because he says this is breaking my heart like I have to go to Jerusalem but it's so hard for me that you're making it difficult please don't do that so you almost see like we talked about a bit last week the double the double-edged sword of when you're in great relationships with people and love people well, the cost then of letting them go. And I think this is another beautiful example of that. Yeah, that's really helpful. So 
there's kind of three mentions of prophecy here, aren't there? Or at least people kind of through the spirit um, urging Paul. Um, what is the role of prophecy here? And what, what can we learn from this kind of early church uh, prophesying that's going on? I think, first of all, it's helpful, isn't it, to define what you mean by prophecy? I don't have like a pithy phrase, but I think there are some obvious differences between Old and New Testament. Here, it's not thus saith the Lord sort of Isaiah Ezekiel style is it it's um the Holy Spirit using people to speak to Paul um rather than sort of coming down from direct God's direct words I don't know would you agree with that Jill yeah I I I was talking to Paul Jump about this last night and he was saying the really important distinction is some prophecy then is scripture isn't it and becomes scripture and yet I agree with that's the Old Testament prophets, but it's also Acts and the um, the writing of the Gospels and the letters. And that was directly God's word for the church for the rest of time. Um, and the sort of prophecy we're seeing in these passages is different to that, isn't it? Because it's a, an impression or a, a leading or a prompting that these people have had that they want to share with Paul. And I would say the important difference is we're not free to discard scripture, are we? we? We sit under scripture and scripture is the authority in our lives. Whereas when somebody comes to us with an impression or a prophecy or a word, then I think the wise thing to do is to weigh that. Yeah, we take that seriously, but we, we measure that alongside scripture and what the Spirit's say, saying to us. And um, so I think our response to those two different types of prophecy is really different. And we see Paul here not doing what um, the prophecies encourage him to do. Yeah, because it's not clear, is it, whether they are saying, you know, through the Spirit, the Spirit is saying don't go, or whether they are hearing from the Spirit that it's going to be dangerous and therefore urging him not to go, um, which I I tend to fall on on the latter, um, and that Paul was like, uh, you know, this was an expression of their love and their desire for him, not bad things not to happen to him. Um, but he's still he's just so brave isn't he like I kind of again like like before we've chatted through you know prophecy can be a point of contention between people but then we kind of lose the the story don't we when we get stuck on these points Um, these are people who love Paul and they don't want him to come to harm and yet he's so brave um, and he's kind of single-minded isn't he in his desire to to follow what he feels that God is is calling him to and it's interesting isn't it in verse 14 they all agreed by by the end of verse 14 let the will of the Lord be done you know they see that his motivation is God's will don't they and so they're happy to send him off with their blessing Mm, yeah, yeah I think I think it's really important that we realize that you know like Paul says in his in some of his other letters you know prophecy is good because he says in Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians doesn't he don't despise prophecies but test everything discern everything you don't have to do that alone you can do that with other people hold fast to what is good and then discard the rest and that's what he seems to do here because I think the problem when you take this well, I think one of the problems you, when you take this issue of prophecy in isolation is that actually <laughs> some what we learn in this passage is that sometimes people see the same situation or get prompted by the same spirit and come to different conclusions. Yeah, I think. Right. So 
so we come to the end of that bit and he he's he's at he we see at the beginning of verse 17 um paul arrives in jerusalem it says actually when we arrived so at this point i'm I'm guessing luke is with him what problem faces paul kind of from within the church from from within the believers in jerusalem um and how is it solved do you think um they believe and they well they've heard it says which i find interesting so the grapevine tells them that Mm. he is um telling gentile converts or even jewish converts that they can just put the law in the bin and they don't need to take jewish customs seriously anymore and that winds them up a little bit um is that true yes and no i would say um i guess we've seen so that we've seen in a couple of chapters ago that he took a nazarite vow himself so i think that shows us that he's not completely washed himself clean of all his jewishness and yet he would be preaching a freedom, wouldn't he? That and a, and he wouldn't emphasize the law in the way that it looks like the Jerusalem church still did. So I think there probably has been a difference in emphasis whilst he's been away on his travels. Yeah, I think this is the introduction of a new question, isn't it? The, you know, the old question was, um, are we saved by by faith alone, or do you need to become a Jew? You know, do you need to be saved? work towards the law and then be saved by faith that was the old question and the new question is is it okay for Jews to act like Jews after they've been saved so this is kind of the the question that they're they're wrestling through I think um you know again one in I love one Corinthians but he says you know um though I am free from all I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews you know all these things I think, um, you know, there is this question when it comes to um, what Paul does to solve this question, which is basically undergo religious observations that I I found quite shocking at first. Mm. But I think if you look at the um, and, you know, he seems to be saying, oh, I need to do this in order to uh, be able to function like I need to do this. But I. I, I think if you look at Paul as a whole and you look at his other letters and you look at the rest of Acts, he doesn't do things that then call the gospel into question. Um, I think if you look at the other things he says in other places, he's become all things to all men in order to help those people become Christians and serve Christ effectively. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, we see him circumcise Timothy, don't we? Uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Um yeah, I think you're right. And Paul doesn't seem to be the kind of guy that that will have any problems with kind of causing a, a stir if he needs to. But he obviously wants here to be all things to these men um, so that it's not a huge uh, obstacle to them. The summary I read of this section, which I found so helpful, is, is Paul's spirit is free, isn't it, in the gospel? And he doesn't, but he's not captive to his own freedom. So he's happy to do this because he's not stamping his feet and saying, I am free. I am not doing that. His, mm. his own freedom isn't the driver. The driver is the gospel. And because um, it's helpful for him to do this for the church in Jerusalem, he's happy to do it. And I, I find that super challenging that he's happy to bind himself in certain ways if that helps people love Jesus. So, yeah, he is really living free, isn't he, Paul? Um, Even though to us that might look like more constricting at times. 
Um, and then he, you know, he was in kind of tricky water um, amongst the kind of church in Jerusalem. But then we get to this point where he gets into really hot water. Um, what happens in this last chunk of the passage? How does Paul's life as a free man kind of physically come to an end? Um, yeah, so again, the, there's there's a stirring up, isn't there, of people that are frustrated and the Jews are keen to cause trouble for Paul. And so he gets dragged out of the temple. And I think it was an attempted lynching, wasn't it? Like It doesn't say that here, but I think when you read around what was going on, they were basically trying to kill him. Well, no, it does say that. <laughs> they were seeking to yeah. kill him. But then really interestingly, um, a Roman official sees what's going on likes law and order, sees there's a mob, and so comes and actually the arrest in some ways is his salvation in this situation, isn't it? Like God uses that Roman official to arrest him to save his life. And yeah, I just, we've seen that a few times as well, haven't we, in the last few chapters, that often it's the church and the Jewish um, believers that are frustrated and angry at Paul and Rome and the authority of the day God uses to step in and save him. And I think we see that again here. Yeah, and it's not even the Jews from Jerusalem, is it? It's the Jews from Asia. They're there for a festival. They see him. They don't even hear him. They don't even interact with him. They see him and they stir up a lynching. You know, there's this uh, passionate theological differences mixed with personal hatred that just leads to this horrific situation. Because it was actually, it's it's quite highly um, unlikely that Paul did actually take, uh, what's his name, Tro- Trophimus, Trophimus, into that yeah. bit of the temple, because it was, it was actually punishable by death um, to do that. So it's quite unlikely that he would have done that. Um, but there's these words, aren't they, like assumed. Um, yeah. And, you know, once a rumour starts, once the anger starts, it just, is, it just takes this tiny spark um and it's just so undignified isn't it as he's he's you know he's basically carried away they've just tried to kill him he's probably in in a lot of pain but there's this sense there's this sense of the inevitable isn't there that this was this was what he kind of expected he must just you know all that prophesying that was happening is, is coming true um yeah and it's 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 sad but it's also it's kind of exciting what's going to happen next Um, we know this isn't the end of his journey. I just feel like this is the culmination of his sort of mirroring of Jesus's journey, isn't it? But it's also a mirroring of Stephen's, like the accusations of the Jews from Asia say he's against the people, he's against the law, and he's against the temple. And that are the exact same accusations that were thrown at Stephen. And we know how that ended. And so there's all these sort of mirroring of all these different people in church history that are culminating and it almost feels like oh he's rescued again okay Mm. great story continues Mm. you know it's just this weird moment yeah definitely because he's like this is the end of his like physically kind of free life isn't it from now he from now on he's he's always kind of at the bidding of other people um in jail or being tried you're right mary from now on in he's bound isn't he or he's um under constraint but he knows doesn't he deep within his soul that God's in control and actually he's he's free God will put him where God wants him to be and so even though the authorities have him bound and chained and then eventually taken to Rome 
that whole time he knows that God's the one that's really in control. And so he's always looking for opportunities and using the circumstances that he finds himself in to speak about the hope that he has. And so even we were talking yesterday about something similar and we actually landed on the fact that there's no such thing as a bad day for a Christian, is there? Because if God's in control and God's at work for good, then what would look to us like a physically bad day, oh, Paul's been arrested, is just part of God's plan for this day. And I think Paul knows that deep within his heart, doesn't he? And that brings him such freedom because God's the one who's in control. Yeah, there's a sense, isn't it, that these chains don't hold him because his perspective on life is just so different isn't it he's 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 free from his sin he knows that christ has has paid the price uh for his sin he knows where he's going um he knows that you know like he says elsewhere to live is is christ to die is gain and he really lives that doesn't he um i find that hard in kind of day-to-day trawl of life i kind of lose that perspective and i think it's just so healthy to read of someone who has that perspective just nailed um, Paul really does live um, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Um, and we're going to see more of that as we head on through Acts. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening, guys, this week. Um, and I hope you have a good week and we'll see you next week. Bye.